Welcome to Thompson Hines Environmental Laws Podcast. Laws, L-A-W-S, stands for land, air, water, and safety. And that is exactly what we'll be talking about. In the podcast episodes, we cover current topics in environmental health and safety laws in the United States and beyond from the perspective of Thompson Hine attorneys, the regulated community, regulators, and our special guests. My name is Andy Colasar, and I'm a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group, residing in the firm Cincinnati, Ohio office. Today, I'm joined by a special guest and an old friend and colleague from Galling WLG in Canada, and our podcast's first international guest. Harry Dom is a well-known and widely respected environmental law specialist in Galling's Toronto office, and it's fair to say one of the foremost environmental lawyers in Canada. Harry counsels a variety of companies and public entities on environmental compliance, enforcement and litigation matters, development of corporate compliance programs, brownfield development, among other things. I would hazard to guess that there are very few aspects of environmental law that Harry hasn't touched in his long career. Harry, welcome to the podcast. I hope you and your colleagues and families are staying well during these unprecedented and challenging times. I'm curious how you and your colleagues are managing your practices during the pandemic. Uh, is everyone working remotely and, and how's that going? Hi, Andy. Yeah, no, we've been working remotely since the beginning of March. And at this point, I think everybody is desperately hoping to be back into the office to be able to see our colleagues and work together in person again. So I think it's something we're probably all experiencing. Amen. I, I hear you. Before we get into the substance, um, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and um, Galling and and the environmental practice if you would yeah no first of all let me thank you for being the first international guest i feel honored this is a fantastic experience so i very much appreciate that um i've been practicing in environmental law since 1984 and of course it's developed significantly since we began practicing in the area uh, our practice has gone from being a very small practice to Today, we are one of the largest environmental law practices in the country. In Canada, we have 23 professionals from British Columbia, Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. And we also have colleagues now in our international offices in the UK and in France and elsewhere around the world. Uh, we have gone from being a specialty practice focusing on a few unique areas to now probably having one of the broadest environmental practices. We do everything from litigation, including defenses to prosecution, the complete variety of regulatory compliance matters, and we do um, a ton of corporate and real estate related advice. It's um, it's been interesting to see the practice develop over the years, and, and we're quite proud of the fact that it is probably one of the broadest environmental practices in Canada. Well, well thanks for that. And, um, you know, we certainly have enjoyed um, our relationship with, with your firm over the years and um, working uh, with you on, on, on various matters. 
let, let's start, uh, since I, I mentioned COVID-19, um, let, let's just touch quickly upon some issues related to the use of COVID-related devices and products. Are, are you seeing compliance problems with Canada's product registration requirements in connection with COVID-19? We are. In fact, that's been a, a real growth in our practice since the beginning of COVID. So it's simple things such as American suppliers using products that are not you not uh, licensed for use in Canada. Um, let's take commercial cleaning services and the products which are being used for hard surfaces. Uh, many of the products are in fact not licensed for use in Canada. So in Canada, depending on the efficacy of the product, if that's 99.999% effective, it is required to be registered for use under the Food and Drugs Act. If it is 99.99% effective, it is under the Pest Control Products Act. And certainly what we've seen is products intended to be used uh, have not been registered. What we've also seen, though, and kind of from an interesting point of view, is new products being developed, both in Canada and in the United States. So, for example, the use of UV lights to clean shopping carts, you know, a fantastic application of ultraviolet light for the purpose of sterilizing shopping carts. And uh, that is a new application that we're proceeding to actually do the registrations in the U.S. and in Canada. So it's been a, a dramatic increase in that kind of practice. And have companies faced enforcement actions for missing these requirements? It hasn't been so much enforcement actions. Um, in Canada, what we see is that there is a gradated response to non-compliance so that if non-compliance is identified, the first thing that happens is a letter requesting stop sale of the product and discontinuance of distribution of the product. Only in the event of continued distribution and sale does the enforcement begin to ramp up so that there's a risk of prosecution. Um, but what we have seen certainly is an increase in the number of letters saying that certain products are not licensed for use, that claims are being made for certain pest control purposes that have not been justified, and what we're seeing increasingly is products being removed from the shelves where those claims are not supported by an, a registration. So when they say stop use, they actually mean stop use? Yeah, so it will be a letter to a, uh, whether it is a retailer or a distributor, simply saying that those products should either be removed from the shelves or should no longer be distributed. We have not yet seen an order saying that those products should be destroyed, but that is something that could happen in the event that somebody fails to comply with the requirement to stop selling. If if a if a product has does not have the appropriate registration and is subject to a stop order, uh, is that something that could be then obtained readily, or does that take months or years? There's, um, depending on the nature of the product, certain products um, are, we're, we're seeing that the period of time for approval has been expedited for certain products. Typically, registration takes about 15 months from the date of application to the date of the issuance of the, the registration. 
For COVID-related products, we're seeing an, a, a speed up in the rate of processing so that it is not unusual to see, let's say, a period of 12 months. Um, however, you know, that is, it's uh, still a long time before a product is registered and before it can be sold. Mm. Well, well, thanks for that. Let's, let's move on to um, uh, our second topic. I, I wanted to um, get into Canadian product stewardship programs, which should be of interest to companies that are importing products into Canada and who may be unaware of the stewardship programs uh, which apply to their pro products. How would you generally describe the Canadian product stewardship programs? What products are included and, and what are the general obligations? So what we have are uh, product stewardship programs in every province and territory in Canada. And unfortunately for importers of products, those programs are not consistent. So that certain products may be included in certain provinces, but they may be excluded in other provinces. Typically, the stewardship programs are for consumer products. So the most obvious ones are packaging, printed paper, that kind of thing. Um, in some provinces, there are used paint programs. There may be tire recycling programs, but it really does vary from province to province. Are these new requirements? No, um, but what we're seeing is that the, the products which are subject to these requirements are changing so that they are added from time to time, depending on the availability of certain programs. Um, but the basic rules have stayed the same for some time. So the, the question for an importer into Canada is often, um, who is the steward? Who is responsible for the payment of the stewardship fee? So what we're often asked to, asking the clients to do is to go back to their supply chain, identify whether it is the manufacturer that is importing the product into Canada, or if not the manufacturer, who is the importer of record? Is the manufacturer, does the manufacturer have a place of business in the province into which material is being imported? Because one of the key requirements for the determination of who is a steward is whether or not it is a Canadian company or whether it has a place of business in Canada. And then from that point, what is the distribution chain? So while products may be imported to a distributor, let's say in Ontario, they may be distributed from that facility into other provinces. And it becomes important at that point to determine who is responsible for paying the stewardship fees in those other provinces to which it is being imported. Has there been any effort on the national level to implement a more uniform system across the different provinces? No, and this is not unique to the Canadian legal system, but uh, it may be instructive to uh, your listeners who, who are not familiar with this. But in Canada, the federal government has limited jurisdiction over environmental matters. 
it is the provinces and the territories that have primary jurisdiction over the environment. So that for the federal government, it is limited in large part to, let's say, toxic substances, but waste, waste management are matters that are regulated by the provinces. And so the stewardship programs, you know, while they there may be some similarity, there is no guarantee that the products are going to be treated the same way from province to province. Are there any other pitfalls or or common mistakes that um, manufacturers or importers are making in in this area? Yeah, no. Often, I think it is failure to recognize who is the steward. So there are instances where we have been engaged and where an importer has failed to recognize it is their responsibility to pay the stewardship fee. And so that seems to be the most common pitfall. There's the understanding that, you know, it goes to a distribution warehouse, but it's been a failure to understand that the manufacturer may have that obligation. And then the other one is to fail to identify applicable programs. So it uh, may be that a product, again, is imported into Canada, but distributed then throughout the country from that facility. So there may be a failure, and there often is, to identify the applicable provincial programs. Where is the product being sold? Well, it certainly seems like uh, an area that, uh, particularly with the, the, you know, potentially conflicting programs in the provinces, um, uh, full of pitfalls for uh, manufacturers and importers. And, you know, for large distributors. So, you know, if we think of um, international distributors, Amazon, Walmart, and others, it is an issue that they need to deal with every day on who is responsible for payment of the fees that they are then distributing throughout the country or for the products they're distributing throughout the country. Okay, Harry, we're gonna we're gonna move on. I, I appreciate um, we're we're doing sort of a lightning round of uh, topics of interest uh, in in uh, under Canadian legal uh, environmental law. Um, wanted to move on next and and hear your comments about legislative or legal developments relating to the duty to consult with First Nation nations or indigenous peoples and, and how this will affect how it has or will affect uh, development in, in Canada. This is a really a, a fascinating area of law that um, is unique to Canada. And um, so, so could you give us some brief historical perspective regarding the requirements to assess the impact of development projects on Indigenous peoples and the current requirements? Yeah, so this is actually as much a history lesson as anything else, and that is that um, Canada was obviously um, occupied by First Nations prior to the first white settlers arriving. Um, over time, treaties were uh, negotiated and entered into, but there are, in fact, large parts of Canada where there are no treaties. So for example, in British Columbia and Alberta, you know, there uh, British Columbia, there are no treaties. And so indigenous peoples continue to have indigenous rights to land, 
and to governance over those lands. In other provinces where there are treaty rights, then um, those treaty rights, the, the argument has often been that uh, those treaties have extinguished First Nations rights, and that simply isn't the case, that there are ongoing obligations to First Nations. And so whether it is in a situation where there is a treaty or where it is non-treaty, there will be, and the Supreme Court of Canada has decided it is essential that there be the duty to consult on projects which affect First Nations. So what that means across the country is that uh, projects, you know, let's think resource projects, resource um, mining, forestry, um, but also infrastructure projects affecting First Nations lands or lands over which you know, they may have an interest, um, all require um, that the proponent consult with the First Nations regarding those projects. And, 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 and then what comes out of that duty to consult? So the, the duty to consult, I mean, if we can consider this as a, a spectrum. So on the one hand, the duty con to consult may simply be providing documentation to the First Nation and seeking comments on the documentation. On other projects, the uh, duty to consult may be much deeper and may require that um, Indigenous history in that particular area be investigated and that um, um, different um, parts of a First Nation be consulted independently. So we've seen that on different pipeline projects where there are elected uh, officials for some of the First Nations, but there are also traditional chiefs, each of which have their own authority to make decisions on behalf of the First Nation and where there is deeper consultation that is required. So, so the end result of all that is that um, it is, I think, essential for the proponent of any project that may affect a First Nation to first consider the obligation to consult. So you're probably familiar with our um, NEPA um, requirements, which uh, impose for, for major federal actions, environmental impact statements which require a, an assessment of impacts, but, but it doesn't force any action of, of the agency. It, it informs the agency and the public of the impacts. Um, is that similar with the duty to consult or does it then lead to a, a duty to mitigate or avoid consequences? It leads to those things that you've just identified, which is to negotiate. So we have been involved in the negotiation of impact benefit agreements that are intended to compensate the First Nation for the project in their territory. Um, you know, there has been, and, and I will say there are extensive, an extensive number of court cases then also dealing with the extent to which the duty to consult has been satisfied. So it's in an effort to avoid those court cases where we've also seen um, negotiations leading to uh, equity interest in projects, um, uh, commitments that are related to employment and a variety of benefits to First Nations. Now there seems to be um some significant legislative activity 
regarding the rights of indigenous peoples. Um, and 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 it, is that happening at the federal or the provincial level or both? It's at both levels. So this is, uh, I think, what you may be referring to as the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, so uh, the previous federal government was not prepared to implement that declaration. This current government has indicated the intention to do that. So this is at the federal level. In British Columbia, where there are no treaties with First Nations, British Columbia has already passed legislation which requires all future legislation to consider the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples in that legislation and major decision-making to um, uh, comply with that declaration. So the issue and the concern um, has been that portion of the declaration, which requires free and prior, uh, free and informed prior consent to a project. Uh, that has been interpreted differently by many people, but that will be the outstanding issue if the legislation currently proposed by the federal government is approved. What does free and informed prior consent mean? Does it simply mean deeper consultation or does it actually mean a veto being given to First Nations over resource development projects or other projects affecting their lands? What's the answer to that? And that is something that there is a significant debate about and that we're ultimately going to be looking to the Supreme Court of Canada to decide. What, what's the business community's response to, to that act? Um, I expect it is major concern. Um, there, I think, has already been a recognition of the essential nature of consultation and the uh, fundamental importance of trying to obtain consent for those projects. So the business community, I think, is well aware of the challenges that UNDRIP, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, will have. They've already made significant efforts in an attempt to apply those kinds of principles. Um, and I expect that we will see an increased effort in being made to, to satisfy those requirements. Now, maybe I'm um, misled here, but I, I was aware that um, Ontario had a economic a COVID economic recovery act, and 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 it had. Uh, some reforms of the um, Environmental Assessment Act. Um, is, is that related to this topic as well? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, what it does is it enshrines the concept of consultation with First Nations. Um, that is a keystone now of almost every environmental assessment that is required to be conducted, that there be a level of consultation. And once again, it depends on uh, uh, the, I call it whether it is the treaty or the rights being asserted by a First Nation that assists in determining the degree of consultation, the intensity of that consultation, and where we are on the spectrum with respect to that consultation. Now, you um, a few minutes ago mentioned the British Columbia's um act it has that been finalized or yes. is that still, it has been it has been yeah yeah okay 
Okay, any um, any other general comments you want to make uh, before we move on to the, to the next topic? Well, I think simply that it's um, something that that many people in your audience may not be familiar with and that I think is um, going to be a significant challenge for people proposing projects. Um, and it is essential to engage, I think, professionals who are familiar with the issues. There are a number of lawyers in this country who are very familiar with all of these issues who have been involved in um, consultation for a number of years. And I think it's essential that those individuals become involved where a proponent is moving forward with a project. And so I take it uh, going, you know, again, going back to the NEPA analogy, um, NEPA is used in, in this country to delay projects and 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 sometimes long enough to kill them um and um is that sort of the the outcome at of this consultation process it can be it certainly can be um and we've seen that um it is without a doubt that environmental assessment legislation opens up opportunities to challenge all of the assumptions made as to the net effects analysis, the mitigation measures and how effective they are. And the involvement of First Nations uh, adds another uh, element to that. Um, so I think what it does is it increases the uncertainty as to whether approvals will be obtained. And what it requires, I think, is a tremendous amount of advanced planning on precisely how you're going to address all of those issues, including the need to consult. And it sounds like from a developer's perspective um, that the uh, momentum is, is, is going in from their perspective, probably in the wrong direction for. I'd say, for, for I'd say that's true. Yeah, I'd say that's true. All right, let's uh, move on. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about contaminated sites and uh, brownfield redevelopment. Um, can you give us an update on developments that affect the remediation of contaminated sites and brownfield development? Yes, I'd be pleased to. Um, Similar to what I said previously, the federal government is responsible really only for federal contaminated sites. So those are dealt with under a separate regime. Other than that, each province has its own legislation that determines how to deal with contaminated sites. The standards vary from province to province. The procedures vary from province to province. And so What's required is that intimate knowledge of the legislative regime in each province. Um, certainly what we've seen is significant changes in that legislation over time. So as we move across the country, British Columbia has very much a prescriptive process, probably more familiar to your audience and US EPA and the way that they approach this process than uh, let's say other provinces. So in Ontario, um, it is not quite as prescriptive. We've seen some significant developments. Other provinces will be, I think, easier to deal with. Quebec is, uh, as opposed to the rest of the country, it is a civil law regime as opposed to a common law regime. And it has legislation, which again is, is unique 
So I think the first thing is, depending on where the property is, that, that will determine the legislative requirements for dealing with contaminated sites. That will determine the authority given to the province to order certain things to be done and the limits on their right to order certain things to be done. Now, I, I did a little bit of homework uh, before this podcast, and um, I, I was reading about the um, guidance, the ministry's update of its guidance on the records of site condition program. Could you tell us a little bit about that program and what changes have been made and, and what impact they will have? Yeah, so in Ontario, there is um, a document called the record of site condition. And uh, perhaps uh, for the for your audience, it may be useful to point out we have no uh, nothing from the province, such as uh, a letter saying everything is good and you will never have to worry again. Instead, what we have is this record of site condition, which is a document which ultimately gets filed on title to the property and um, which is actually filed on the environmental site registry and then there's a notice on the title to the property that the document exists. And what the legal effect is of a record of site condition is that it precludes the Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks from issuing a future order in respect of the contamination on the property. So its only legal effect is with respect to the authority to issue an order. However, a record of site condition is used by lenders, by buyers and sellers as, think of it as a certificate of cleanliness. What it means is that there is a reduced risk to the person either in control of the property today, the person who may be buying the property, that an order will issue. It does not deal with civil liabilities. So, for example, you could have a record of site condition issued on a property filed on the environmental site registry, but could still be sued by an adjacent property owner for contamination, which may have migrated from the property. So some of the changes, some of the more recent changes, um, what they relate to is uh, things like um, soil vapor intrusion guidelines. So in the past, we have relied simply on quality of groundwater and VOCs and other contaminants that may result in impacts on air quality inside buildings. What we have seen now is that there are the soil vapor intrusion guidelines which are intended to identify the potential risk associated with air quality in a building due to the accumulation of vapors beneath a floor slab. That is one of the more significant changes. Well, we uh, we could have probably a whole another program on vapor intrusion, um, which is obviously a, a hot issue in, in both countries. I, I do want to go back to the records of site condition. Um, you know, in this country, we we have different, we call them different things. Um, in Ohio, the Voluntary Action Program results in a covenant not to sue from the government, uh, but it also has a lot of exclusions. Um, let's go back to your um, record of site condition. Um, you, you mentioned that it doesn't protect the property owner or the 
presumably the responsible party from civil liability. Are there other um, exclusions from the protection from the government? For example, um, you know, some new discovery of contaminant that, that wasn't identified in the initial investigation. Yes, no, and that's that's exactly right. Uh, the record of site condition is accepted by the ministry and filed on the assumption that the contamination is as described in the supporting documents to that record of site condition. But if there are changes, whether it's new contamination or whether it is contamination which is subsequently discovered and found to be migrating off site, then all bets are off and the record of site condition will not prevent the ministry from then taking further action, issuing an order to, for example, conduct further investigations or to remediate. Yeah, very similar here. And, um, you know, the covenant not to sue is really the gold standard for purchasers and lenders, uh, but we certainly um, want them to understand uh, some of the um, exclusions uh, that, that we don't want them to be surprised in, in the future. And, and what certainly we've seen in agreements of purchase and sale is that the kind of security somebody wants is the filing of a record of site condition, but it's often supported by other things, such as, you know, whether there is an escrow agreement with respect to the holding of funds for remediation, whether there's a limit on financing to ensure there's sufficient money to complete the work. You know, there may be ongoing obligations which survive post-closing, but we've often seen people responding to the risk that uh, uh, by having other provisions and agreements in order to protect themselves. Okay, um, I, I wanted to, um, if it's okay with you, Harry, to, to move on to our final topic, um, which I, I know is uh, near and dear to, to your heart. Um, and, and that's plastics. Um, I understand that the Canadian government is proposing to ban certain plastic products. And, and I understand that this will be implemented by adding certain single-use plastic manufactured items to the toxic substance list. Um, first, could you identify the types of single-use plastic items that would be banned? Yeah, no, it starts out with simple things like stir sticks and plastic cutlery and uh, plastic bags. Um, there are six items that have been listed or not listed that have been proposed to be banned, but that is the initial list. Now, why did the government choose this approach to ban these items? And, and, and I guess maybe asked another way, how are these plastic items considered toxic under the law governing toxic substances, um, which you know would then lead to a ban of, of these items? So maybe I'll begin by just summarizing the, the legislative regime and comparing it to what your listeners may be familiar with. So in Canada, we have the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, and a part five of that legislation deals with toxic substances. So this would be similar to your TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. But um, uh, under that uh, part five, there was a process whereby all of the substances in use in Canada between 1984 and 1986 were characterized 
Some uh, that were in use um, in Canada were put on the domestic substances list. Others not in use in Canada during that time, but used elsewhere in the world were on the non-domestic substances list. And Canada then went through a process of looking at the substances on the domestic substances list in order to identify those that may be inherently toxic. That program has progressed and it is called the Canada's Chemical Management Program. And what it does is it goes through the substances that are in use for the purpose of determining are they toxic as defined in the legislation. So under section 64 of the legislation, the question is, you know, are they effectively uh, persistent, bioaccumulative, or will they cause long-term harm to human health or the environment? That's simply a summary of section 64. What the federal government promised prior to the last election was that they would take action on plastic pollution. And that action has manifested itself as uh, uh, the proposal to add plastic manufactured items to the list of toxic substances. Under, that's Schedule 1 of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. So it's plastic manufactured items which are an undefined group of materials that will be added. And if they are added to Schedule 1, then the federal government has broad jurisdiction to enact a variety of risk management measures, extending from a ban, such as in the case of stir sticks or plastic bags, to other risk management measures, for example, recycling standards or certain requirements. Um, the issue, quite simply, is you know that uh, if it is if plastic manufactured items are added to the toxic substances list, you know then nobody knows really what is included, and the risk is that this wide variety of materials may be subject to those kinds of risk management measures. The um... And, and, and do you think this approach is going to withstand legal challenges, which I'm sure will be coming? Uh, that will be seen. There are, as you can well imagine, a large number of suppliers, producers, uh, people involved with plastic manufactured items who, first of all, objected to the proposed listing in Schedule 1. So there were, for the first time, an extraordinary number of notices of objection that were filed with the federal government, many of which were very detailed scientific examinations of why plastic manufactured items are in fact not toxic, why plastic manufactured items do not belong on the toxic substances list. The federal government has yet to respond. The way it will respond is um, either by publishing in Canada Gazette Part 2, adding plastic manufactured items, or by convening what is called a board of review. So a board of review would then conduct an evaluation of whether plastic manufactured items are toxic. It's unknown what they'll do. But I can assure you that any further regulation, attempt at regulating plastic manufactured items, will result in some legal actions being taken. I know that that's happening right now. You know, certainly we've been involved in that, and I fully expect that others have as well. We, you know, when we think of toxic substances, we think of things like PCBs. 
Um, so by taking this approach, is there concern that consumers using these products are going to be, you know, thinking that there there's a, a health impact of, of that sort? Well, that's certainly the possibility, you know, but, you know, what's interesting, you know, just put it in context that it is not plastic that is being added to the toxic substances list. So the plastic as a substance is not being identified as something that is toxic. It is only the manufactured items that are made out of plastic that are being identified as being toxic. You know, and that becomes sort of this, this, um, existential question in some ways, how is it that the plastic manufactured items can be toxic, but that the plastic itself cannot? And I think that's a fundamental question that many people struggle with. Sure. And, and how will this ban interact with uh, provincial and municipal laws? Well, and this is the other issue, and that is that, um, you know, I, I had said this previously, is that the federal government has limited jurisdiction in respect to the environment. So in Canada, we have our, our constitution, and the constitution provides for a separation of powers between the federal government and the provinces. Arguably, plastics are really, you know, if the issue is plastics in the environment, that is a waste issue. That is an issue to be dealt with by the provinces who have extensive waste management regimes, extensive recycling programs, and who have been engaged with the federal government for many years on trying to harmonize those programs across the country. So, so that's another issue is does the federal government really have the jurisdiction to do this and shouldn't it really be left to the provinces to attempt to regulate the use and the disposal of plastics? And, and and so what's the status of this proposed action? Um, so um, the the first step was publication of the Canada Gazette Part 1, and that happened back in October. The There was a date for responding to that, and those responses were all filed in December. The federal government can act anytime. So there is an expectation that there may be publication in the Canada Gazette, let's say in the next 30 days. It could be that they may choose a board of review, but certainly the expectation is that um, something will happen soon. The Prime Minister had promised that the ban would come into effect on January 1, 2022. And as you can well imagine, there is tremendous concern on the part of the manufacturers that this um, will happen quickly and that there simply isn't enough time to find alternatives. And, and you know, we're in a, we're in a pandemic. Um, is there any discussion about maybe holding off? Um, at, you know, some of these products have usefulness during, you know, in a pandemic. And that's exactly the point that has come up repeatedly, which is that, you know, while perhaps plastic stir sticks may not be essential for the purposes of addressing COVID, many of the other products are. And is it appropriate uh, to propose banning those products when confronted with COVID? So certainly those discussions have been taking place and there's been a lot of concern on the part of many people, not just the producers, on the effect that banning these materials, these products may have on our ability to fight COVID. 
Okay, well, Harry, um, I, I think that's the end of uh, the, the topics that we have. I, I really want to thank you for your time today um, and, and giving us this um, broad overview of some, some, some topics that, that I know will be of interest to our listeners uh, and give them a lot to contemplate. Um, if our listeners have any questions uh, regarding the information we discussed today, uh, they can find Harry's contact information at Gowling's website, which is gowlingwlg.com. Did I get that right, Harry? Yes, you did. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, this concludes this episode of our Laws podcast. We look forward to continuing to provide our listeners with practical insight into EHS laws and developments. Um, this laws podcast episode and, and our others are available at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. We'll have additional new episodes in the coming months, so, so please be on the lookout. If you have a request regarding a topic you would like to hear addressed in a future episode, please send me or your usual Thompson Hine contact an email with your request. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit our website at thompsonhine.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thanks again, Harry. Uh, I hope you and your colleagues stay well and have a great 2021. And thank you, Andy. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners and as always very much value our relationship with Thompson Hines. So thanks very much for this. Uh, thank you, and, and we'll see you soon. All Take right. care. Bye-bye. Okay.